Welcome to Step Monsters, a podcast all about the highs and lows of step parenthood. I'm Elise, and this is Bailey. We're two friends bonded by this crazy stepmom world. All right. Welcome back, everybody. We are really excited for tonight's guest. We met a friend of ours. Her name is Corinne through social media, and she is actually a family law attorney based in San Diego, California. So she works for Primus Family Law, and once we found out that she was sort of in the same world that we were in, we knew that we had to ask her to be a guest on our podcast, and thankfully she said yes. So Corinne has been practicing law for over 12 years. She's actually a certified family law specialist. In addition to that, she's a minor's counsel, which basically means she can also represent the children in a blended family situation, and a discovery referee. I'll let her unpack a little bit more of what that actually means. So she does a little bit of everything, including things like litigation, mediation, settlement, and then even add on to that, she's actually also a stepmom. So she has two stepkids, uh, 11 and 15-year-old boys, and has known her stepkids for a little over a year. So Easter 2020, which was I'm sure a super interesting time to come into stepmotherhood. Uh, she and her partner are not married, but do live together. And uh, she also, adding to that, is a stepchild too. So much like me, Bailey, she has both a stepmother and a stepfather of her own. So if you were to imagine what it would be like to find the perfect family law attorney to have on our episode, it would look a lot like Corinne. It's someone who not just has the education and the background to relate to what we deal with on a daily basis, but also can empathize in a different way that I think a lot of uh, family law attorneys maybe are, are not able to. And then just some quick disclaimers, the, the non-fun stuff. So Corinne does not know anyone related to our podcast, aside from just getting to know us briefly via social media. She's not familiar with anybody's specific legal issues, and she also will not be discussing any of her clients, specifically just to preserve their confidentiality. She's not providing legal advice, but when we polled our Instagram audience, we let them know Corinne is going to be able to provide general guidance and general answers to questions that anyone might have around family law. Well, thanks for being here, Corinne. We are really excited to have you. And I know we've been going back and forth leading up to this episode, trying to organize all the questions that we got and a lot of the questions that we got will will surround the topics of custody, child support, managing schedules, documentation, and really helping everyone understand the place that a stepmom has or could have in the legal world as it relates to blended families. So I want to start off with a topic that we got the most amount of questions around, and that is custody. So some of the questions that we got are, how does it work? How is it determined? What things can change custody as we go throughout you know, a child's life and prior to them being 18? So I know, Corinne, you had some thoughts specifically around custody evaluation. So if we were to kind of go chronologically, which everybody probably knows I like to do up until this point anyways, um, the first thing that you have to do in order to determine custody is do some evaluation. So Corinne, would you mind unpacking for us sort of how that typically works in a blended family situation or even just a divorced situation? Sure. Uh, well, so I think a lot of times step parents come into a situation that is already set um, a lot of times because there's been a divorce and usually in a divorce custody and visitation is part of that. So I think a lot of times we kind of walk into a situation that's been, you know, kind of created before maybe even we were involved. It's not always the case. Um, and certainly it wasn't necessarily the case in mine either. I was there as the situation kind of evolved, but thankfully they were able to really work together and come up with their arrangement. I, I had nothing to do with any of that. That was hundred percent that. So um, custody determinations, at least in California, in, in San Diego specifically, um, we are a mandatory mediation county, which means that the court actually provides a family court services mediator to talk to the parents about custody and visitation. And usually the things they ask are things like, who has historically been the primary care parent? What are your guys' work schedules? And what is the child's schedule? So realistically speaking, what can you do? And other things that can come into it are, you know, sometimes the child's preference, sometimes they'll actually interview the children and ask what they prefer. They have to usually be of a sufficient age and only so much weight is given to that preference, but some background factors, uh, they will sometimes check with CWS to see if there's been any reports or claims there. 
um, anybody's claiming domestic violence, uh, you know, those kinds of more specific types of allegations. But generally speaking, when you're talking about sort of an all things being equal situation, it's who's been the primary care parent and what can you guys do? You know, where, where part of town do you live in versus what part of town does the other person live in? And where is the school located? And what is your work schedule? And does the child have appointments or things that they have to do? And who can drive them? And that kind of really practical, but not particularly interesting stuff. That's a lot of what it comes down to. You bring up a good point. One of the questions that we actually got was, what can a stepmom's involvement be when it comes to taking kids to doctor's appointments, pickups from school. And I actually have dealt with this myself a little bit. So prior to my husband and I being married, actually even now that we're married, I'm not allowed to pick the kids up from school. My stepdaughter is a sophomore in college, so now it's totally irrelevant. I'm sure she would love if I picked her up from school. (laughs) Um, But for my stepson, I'm not actually on the list with his school in order to be able to pick him up. And that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the legal setup. It's really just more, do they want me on the list of people that are able to pick him up from school should there be an emergency or something that arises where my driving services are needed? (laughs) But is there anything formal that is necessary for, let's say, a stepmom to take their kid to a doctor's appointment, a dentist appointment, or pick them up from school? So uh, this is, this sort of falls under like a, a legal custody issue. Personally, I don't think there should be any reason why a step parent should not be able to provide transportation. As long as your licensed driver and your license is valid and you have a car that's safe and, you know, it's insured. And usually, at least here, that's kind of it. You know, we, we kind of expect that parents are making good decisions for their kids. It's it's sort of a, a presumption that, that parents are acting in their children's best interest. And that includes who are you bringing into your life and, uh, you know, making sure that that person is, is doing things appropriately. So if we're really talking about transportation and stuff like that, there really shouldn't be a problem with that. But the other level to that, I think that you kind of touched upon is that you then have providers that need to also be kind of on board with this. So doctors probably can't treat on your say-so um, unless maybe you have a power of attorney or something that, like that, which allows you to make those kinds of decisions in place of your significant other. And then, you know, then you're talking about some probably issues with the other parent saying, you know, I don't, I don't agree with this. And so then, you know, and it might be usually I would think in that kind of a case too, they would just be not available. You know, that parent's not available. They say, well, my, I want the, my, my significant other, the step parent to be able to make a decision here. The other parent's probably going to step in and be like, I can make the decision while you're gone. It's fine. Schools, same thing. I mean, nobody really wants to be in the middle of a, I, I try and I'll, I'll, I'll usually tell people like there are hills you don't want to die on. That's a hill not to die on because it's, be frank, a dumb issue. It's dumb. You know, you want to spend how much money to argue over this hour. And then at the end of the day, you don't know what a judge is going to do. And you may end up looking really petty. You know, if you're the parent who says, no, this this needs to change by an hour on his or her days, you may look like the parent who's not willing to facilitate an ongoing relationship with the other parent. And that can have consequences because judges are people and humans and in family court, they have a lot of discretion. So if they're just like, well, you seem like you're just being really unreasonable, they can use that judgment to say, yeah, I don't think this is good. That's really interesting. I love hearing you talk. You sound a lot like a stepmom. (laughs) Totally. She really does. Well, she is one. So obviously that makes sense. So a couple questions I have for you. To your point, and this isn't a question, that's what we did. Anytime that there were the off times that the kids needed to be picked up at school, they knew I was picking them up and I would just show up. I'm on like the emergency contact list. So again, the school, there's so many kids that they're they're shuffling around. Um, They just needed to know that the kids weren't going to be on the bus. And then it was kind of like, oh, well, they're out the door and, you know, there's a line of 100 cars picking kids up. My other question, and before we get too into specifics, is do you feel like your perspective as an attorney has changed since you've become a stepmom? It's a good question. I would say yes. Probably a lot more empathy for step parents that I, I don't think I, I would, I would say I did not consider that perspective nearly as much. I think I treated step parents much like a lot of attorneys treated step parents where I'm like, 
This has nothing to do with you. These are not your kids. Why do you care? Why are you involved? Why are you calling my office? Let the dad and the mom work it out. And I think I I now have a, a deeper sense of why this is so important. I think listening to this podcast and listening to some of the things that have gotten brought up in prior episodes, one of the things that really stood out to me was the quote you guys were talking about that um, just going along with something, you know, just having sort of no boundaries is a, a trauma response. That one really stood out to me because, you know, I often am just like, eh, just let it go, just let it go, just let it go. But then it's like, wait a minute, no, I have to have like boundaries or we have to have boundaries at some point because some fights are worth having. And, you know, you want to make sure that you're picking the worthy fights because you want to have true boundaries regardless of other people's feelings. But, you know, you don't want to fight every battle. That's why I'm saying like, you don't want to die on certain hills. Like those are not worthy battles. You hit the nail on the head. I think the quote that you were referencing is the keeping the peace can sometimes be a trauma response. And I love that and find myself referring back to it. And actually, I don't know if you've made it all the way through the last episode yet, but there's a a point where I think towards the end, Elise, myself and Alex, who's our guest, actually said, sometimes you just have to keep the peace. And I always want a disclaimer that with, yes, that is true. Sometimes that's the best thing to do because ultimately you're in a situation where you're considered a parent of some type and one quality of parents is that they always put their kids first. So when you've put yourself in this situation, you have to look at things with that lens, but, but, big but, don't do it at the expense of your own sanity and don't sacrifice your own boundaries to try to make other people happy like at the end of the day as shitty as it sounds they are actually are not your kids and there are different boundaries that you can set in that situation just to keep yourself sane like we had even had a message today from a stepmom who said that she's just really mentally struggling and she's like i don't i don't know if i can do this and i said back to her i'm like you don't have to if you're really at the point where you've exhausted all options, your husband won't go to therapy with you, your kids won't go to therapy, you're miserable in your own home, you're having thoughts that are really dark, you should probably reconsider the relationship. And it, you never want it to get to that, but sometimes it does. And I, I think that needs to be destigmatized because stepmoms, while you're you're trying to do all the things that a mom would do, you don't have to do that. Like that, it's just sometimes not worth it. And I think stepmoms forget that they have the ability to still decide that. I don't think it's fair for anyone to feel like a doormat in their own home. And even in, and I say this so many times, but there's so many correlations to just regular relationships. There are things that you compromise on and there are things that are a hard no, that you have to go listen, I have an opinion on this and it's important to me. And so I'm going to speak up. And I think a lot of, well, I don't know a lot of people, but there are some people in co-parenting situations that don't want to A, be in court spending money, or they just don't want to argue because it's stressful. And so they constantly give in to whatever demands and you know unrealistic expectations that the other parent has just to avoid that. So stepmoms, gut check yourself, but there are times when you just are going to be a hard no, and that's okay. Just communicate with your partner. Agreed. And one of the things that comes up constantly is, so when we're talking about disagreements and, you know, getting back to the whole custody topic is when you're a stepmom and you're you're already dealing with a lot of change, you're already dealing with somewhat a lack of control within your own home. And one of the things that we, I'm not kidding you, we get messages about this topic almost daily it's schedules and a bio mom who's not following a schedule and me i've said it before i'm gonna say it again i'm gonna own it i'm type a i'm a control freak it's fine i know who i am and i'm good with it but i have a hard time dealing with schedule changes especially when i don't know they're coming and we've had people message us where it's been so bad that they don't even have a verbal agreement of custody. It's just like whenever they want. And my gut reaction to that is like, oh my God, that's got to be so hard on the kids. Kids thrive off of routine and it's good for them to have a routine so that they know what to expect. But also she's like, I don't know if we can go on vacation for 4th of July weekend because 
I don't know if the bio mom's just going to show up and drop the kids off on my doorstep. And that's an extreme example, but we hear variations of that now and again, where it's like, we either agreed to the schedule through the courts, we agreed to the schedule via email, via text, verbally, whatever it was, there was an agreement and the bio mom's just not following it. So Corinne, what's your perspective on given those scenarios? Like, what can we do? So you have two scenarios that you're kind of presenting me with. And and so I I can speak to a little both of them. So in one scenario, you have no formal agreement whatsoever. And I, and I have the same reaction you do. I'm like, Oh, what? And, and the reason is, is because, you know, this means this is at the whim of another person. And so they can come and go as they please. You know, they can take your time if they want to, because you don't have any time. Like there's, and there's no enforceability of these things. Um, so you can't make plans. You can't count on anything. Um, and there's no help. There's no recourse if you don't have a plan. So you can, there's no one to complain to. So getting something in writing is always going to be superior to just, oh, well, maybe we have them this this day and maybe we don't. And maybe this week she's going to get pissed at me for something else or he's going to get pissed at me for whatever. And now I won't see my kids for a week. But then, you know, stepping it into a step parent role, like, cool, when are we having the kids? When am I going to be doing extra laundry? When are we going to need extra food, you know, and make extra meals? And and we we meal plan for the kids. So like literally before they come, I because we're week on week off, I plan every single meal. I like, I know exactly what we're going to eat. And we go to the grocery store ahead of time. And, and that's it. Like I, I, I want to know when things are happening because then I, I, you know, then I can make plans. So go and absolutely. And it doesn't mean you have to like go to court and start a whole fight. Just, you know, you're right. Write it down. Uh, you have, you go to the court. You file it, and the judge says, "Yeah, sounds good." They sign off, and we're we're good. The other scenario you have, okay, well, we have a plan, but somebody's not following said plan. And I mean, listen, I'm an attorney, and this is a court order. So my reaction to this is, you better follow the court order. There's no excuse not to follow a court order, you know. And if you don't follow a court order, I mean, I heard one of you two say it. It's like this is contempt of court. Most people don't really realize what this means. We see it in movies and TV shows, but really a contempt filing is a quasi-criminal action, which can carry civil or criminal penalties. Absolutely serious. And so, um, yeah, you file a complaint and that person is arraigned on that complaint. And then you have a hearing on the contempt. I would not want to be on the other side of contempt, you know, because again, the consequences can be pretty serious. Usually you're not going to jail, but usually you're going to get fined or something like that. But jail time is a real possibility for uh, contempt charges. So uh, that's not a good thing. Um, Sanctions are another one just try to change custody to be like, well, they won't follow your orders. So I should be primary and I should have more time so that I can make sure that it's just not going to be unilaterally taken away from me and they're just going to ignore you. Is that hard to do, Corinne? Changing custody? So if you have a custody agreement in place already, I mean, there's there's been a couple people in touch with us that have said either the bio mom is unfit for custody or whatever we agree to is not working or there's been a change in our scenario. I want to change my custody agreement. How hard is that to do? It depends, I think, on the on the reasons for why you want to do that and what your schedule already is. So there tends to be a preference for primary care parents. So you're trying to go away from a primary care parent situation. That can be an uphill battle, but it doesn't mean you can't expand your visitation time and even up to 50%. But flipping custody is a whole other ball of wax. So when we talk about time with the kids and this, you know, we have different kinds of things that we're talking about. So we have custody, which has two components. You have legal custody, which is about decision making and all of that. Then you have physical custody, which is whose home are we residing in? And then we have a visitation component that is sort of like a subset of physical custody. So if you have joint legal, it means you both have decision making power, which is sort of hard when you have two people and they go in opposite directions because then there's no tiebreakers between them. Yeah, that's when the court usually gets involved because that's who the judge is. They're tiebreaker. And if it's a 50-50 schedule in general, that is a joint custody schedule. No one really has visitation at that point. But oftentimes what you'll do is refer to your schedule as your visitation schedule. And it so it's like neither of you and both of you have visitation, if that makes any kind of sense. It, it's basically like no one's actually the, the visiting parent 
I know as a custodial parent, but loosely speaking, we say like, what is your visitation schedule? And you say, oh, I have a two five schedule or I have a this or I have that. So when you want to change custody, you really do have to have a pretty big change in circumstance, even actually if you're at a 50-50, because the courts do kind of like to maintain stability for the children. Stability for the children is a fairly primary concern. And honestly, stability in the primary caretaker is a pretty much paramount concern. So that stability is going to pretty much be the biggest factor. So then you're like, well, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about somebody's moving out of state? Okay. Well, that's obviously going to change your schedule or your custodial arrangement because now you're not living in the same city anymore. You're living in two separate states. Um, Has somebody been abusive or neglectful? Um, has somebody historically maybe violated the court orders and interfered in your custodial relationship with your with your kid? That can be something that the court can take into consideration when saying, like, I don't think you should be primary or I don't think you should be, you know, joint. I think this person should be primary. So usually it's pretty, pretty sizable factors to, to make the changes. But sometimes they are very basic and practical, like my work schedule no longer permits me to be home to watch my kid. Uh, and so I have to be gone between the hours of eight o'clock and five in the morning. Well, I'm not going to let the kid be by themselves. So we need them to be with a parent or somebody who can watch them. Those kinds of things make a difference. And, and honestly, it does depend on where we are in the case. Usually by the time step parents are involved, the divorce has already happened. So now we're talking about changing an order of the court that's meant to be not permanent, but permanent in that it's in a judgment. The Montenegro order is basically changing the burden of proof required to change. Now we're talking about custody, not visitation. So if you have a custodial arrangement, i.e. either someone is primary or you have joint and somebody wants to deviate away from that and you have what's called a Montenegro order, which is it's very clear in your order that this is meant to be a permanent arrangement. You there's an extra burden of proof that the person who wants to make a change has to overcome. There has to be a substantial change or material change in circumstances that would warrant changing custody. And this is where I'm talking about those big things like the other parent decided to become a crackhead. And uh, so we think that maybe this this custodial arrangement is no longer in their best interest. And, And the court would probably We'd be like, you know, that seems pretty substantial to me. So you're not wrong. Yeah, not, not wrong there. <laughs> um, I don't want to live with a crackhead, so I don't want anyone's kids living with a crackhead either. Yeah. So these are big ones. While you're saying all of this, in my mind, I'm thinking, how many times, like in a week or in a month, do you have to explain this to new clients? Because what I understood five years ago is completely different than what I understand now. Some of it's just from going through the process and some of it's from doing some research and following legislation. But it has to be a constant thing for you that you're like reteaching folks how the process works just because they have no clue. I would say that, you know, yes, I, I frequently have similar conversations, but that's in part because, you know, I will start a case from the beginning, you know, where they're just coming to me Sometimes they come post-judgment. I guess it would really depend on where, you know, what part of the process is my client in and what experience do they have? You know, are they never divorced before? Have they been divorced before? Have they, are they post-judgment? And now we're talking about this is their fifth RFO to change custody. And sometimes they know it better than I do, you know, because they're just what we call a frequent flyer. So sometimes they have a lot of knowledge about how things work anyway. But of course, you know, if they don't understand how these things work, yeah, sometimes I have to have a conversation to be like, I know you want to change custody because the other parent is just mean to you. Or, you know, I know that you're vegetarian and they're not. And so you think that this is better for them. And so you want to change custody, but that's not probably going to work. Get out of here. Tell me that's not something that actually happened. It's not, Um, right? I could you know totally what? See Honestly, it. people's um, bitches about dietary stuff definitely has come up. A lot of times, what you, what I'm finding is is there's a difference in values, and that is really the heart of the problem between two parents is that they they have a values difference. And this is not really a legal problem. It is it is just a values difference. And unfortunately, what we're doing is we're we're basically resolving values differences in a legal environment. It's not really well suited for that kind of a thing. But also a lot of times judges are not going to sit there and micromanage how you parent your kids. I mean, if you want to be a vegetarian, 
fine. And if you want to feed your kids vegetarian, great. And if the other parent doesn't, we're not going to tell them that they have to follow that. As long as your child's not allergic or, you know, it's causing some sort of problem, you know, they're not going to tell you how to parent that way. Like, wait, hold on. Fun, relevant question. Can a parenting coordinator dictate dietary restrictions? Well, so in terms of parenting coordinators, and again, we don't have them as mandatory uh, appointees in California. I, I would say that it would sort of depend on the scope that you had agreed to have this person decide. And let me just say this about parenting coordinators. Define their scope because what you don't really want is having somebody coming in for the haircuts or the vegetarian diet or, you know, whatever little thing. And now you're paying a bunch of money to fight over, like, I mean, a $12 haircut uh, and some and some carrots. Like, I just don't, yeah, I don't see that as a good thing. So, you know, anytime you enter into a legal arrangement with someone, you really want to make sure that you understand the scope of what's going on here. You know, how much power are you giving them if you are the kind of family that requires more micromanagement and this is not it's not a diss on anybody this just sometimes you get a high conflict person or two high conflict persons and they really do need somebody to bring them back down to earth then a parenting coordinator may be able to do this again it depends on the scope I, I'm not in a place where they're appointed so I can't really speak to what power they have when they're appointed so in the in the place where the parenting coordinator isn't making certain decisions, but let's say the kids are a little bit older, they're between the ages of 12 and 18, at what point do the kids get to have a say? Because it seems like at this point, everybody else has a say in what happens in their lives and what they eat and how their hair looks and what time they go to bed. So is there parameters for when the kids are able to advocate for themselves? And if so... What does that look like? So a lot, I get this question a lot, which is when does my child get to decide who they live with? And I'm like, never. I mean, listen, if you still have to tell your child to eat their vegetables and how to shower appropriately and that they need to go to school and do their homework, they are not necessarily old enough to make that decision. Touche. However, <laughs> the court, about 12 is when I think the, they generally will allow some input from a child and 14 here at least, there's a requirement that the court has to at least consider the preference. But there is also case law that says they are not obligated to follow the child's preference. So when you deal with a custody visitation situation, um, because it's supposed to be something that's in the child's best interest, it's a best interest standard, this is a totality of the circumstances type uh, decision in that, you know, the court just says, give me everything you got. And so anything that could be relevant to that discussion, the court can consider. And so the child's preference is one of those things that they can consider. A lot of the way that that looks, unfortunately, like the wrong way, I would say, is that parents says, well, here's my child's declaration, or here's what my kid say, or I want my kid to testify. You know, but most of the way that that looks is family court services will do an interview with the child and, and state preferences. And then another way that that comes about, probably another, like a higher up level would be like a minor's counsel. So that's when sometimes I get appointed and then I represent a child. And one of my jobs as minor's counsel is to ascertain and present the the child's preference. And then the next thing I do is, is I give factors which I think affect the child's best interest. So I can say to the court, my child prefers this or that situation. And here are some of the things the court should consider in determining what's in this kid's best interest. And sometimes, you know, what the kid wants and what I think is in their best interest will differ. And I usually am very upfront with, about that and say, you know, this is what my, my client prefers. And then sometimes I'll just tell the judge, well, here's the reasons why my client has this preference. Other parent, whoever they are, um, lets them stay up all night long and play video games until their heart's content. And they eat McDonald's every day and they don't have to do their homework. And their boyfriend or girlfriend is allowed to come over and spend the night. And, you know, or they go out and, and nobody knows where they are. Um, and, you know, the other parent is uh, wants structure and wants them in bed by a certain time and doesn't let them play on video games. And courts are not unaware of the fact that kids often have a preference for the parent who lets them get away with more stuff. And so sometimes those preferences don't stem from true issues with one parent. Uh, it's really that the other parent is more lax. And so the child's just like, well, I want obviously want to be the parent who's cool. 
I can fully support this narrative. We are we are the uh, the disciplined house <laughs> in my world. <laughs> we're, we're the house that doesn't let people stay up all night playing video games and that requires phones in bedrooms by 8 p.m. every night. Uh, so I can I can definitely attest to that. Have you ever? So there's there's the kids that are making a decision based on their preference for a parent for those types of reasons. But then I feel like I've also heard a lot from our followers around feeling like, and obviously they don't have any direct evidence to this, but feeling like the story that the child is telling is beyond just a personal preference because of a rogue bedtime. It's more, there's maybe a risk of the child being manipulated or dealing with some sort of alienation. Obviously, you're a part of being a child's advocate. So how do you separate when a kid comes to you and says, this is my preference? Like, are you able to to figure out when that preference is driven by some sort of alienation or manipulation? I do try when I can. Um, and usually, uh, one of, like one of the big signs, I think, that I've heard, not from myself, that this is mostly from from experts and is, um, you know, if a, a child is like 100% on one side and, you know, refuse, like refusing to have a relationship with the other parent, that's usually a bad sign. Cause generally speaking, unless somebody has done something pretty extreme to that child, that child's not stamping their foot on the ground being like, I never, ever want to see you again. So that can be a big sign. There's, there's other trouble in the waters. So conducting an interview with the child, conducting interviews with the parents, usually making other collateral contacts. Sometimes the child has a therapist. If not, you should get them in with a therapist. You know, looking at if there's any history of, of problems. So I guess to read the CWS records, if there are any, sometimes prior filings will help. Sometimes I'll just, I'll just find things out that, you know, if I, if I find out the child's like misleading or lying, by the way, folks, uh, let me tell you a big shocker. Sometimes kids will tell a parent what they want to hear because they are uncomfortable with having a conversation and they are so keenly aware of our feelings about things, especially their parents. They have known us their whole lives and they have made a study of us and kids are very keenly aware of their parents' feelings about the other parents, even when we think we're hiding it so well, we're not. And so oftentimes um, kids will say something to a parent because that's what they think that parent wants to hear or will stop a very uncomfortable conversation they don't want to have. And that can sort of deepen into real feelings sometimes if it goes on long enough or it's it's they have a preferred parent and they know that's what that parent wants. They will adopt that parent's narrative as their own. It's really bad. And I think we have a responsibility to our kids not to put them in those situations uh, and not to make them feel like it's not okay to love the other parent or to want to be with the other parent. You know, if you have a, if you don't want to be with that person anymore, great. You got a divorce. Fantastic. You're not together anymore. But that kid has the right to have a relationship with the other parent. And you need to show some wisdom um, when it comes to what this child is telling you about what's going on. If you're just believing your kid hook, line, and sinker, and you're not verifying any of the information for yourself, like, hey, the kid said this and this happened at your house. What's up? You know, that that to me is a sign of a parent who truly isn't just like said, buying into whatever, you know, narrative is going on, but actually wants to know what's truly happening. But if there's no verification or it's like this kid said this happened, you're a terrible person. Like, I believe them, you know, and they don't want to believe anything but what the child is saying. And like, it's problematic. And so, you know, unfortunately, it's one of those things where it usually develops a lot over time. I would say if you are finding that there's an alienation issue, probably one of the things you want to do is is try to get your child in with a, a therapist. The kids therapist, they act more like an advocate for the other parents and they're like, oh, it's okay that this kid doesn't want to ever see their other parent. Like I support that. It's like you haven't even had a conversation with me. Like and on the counter side of that, you know, they're also aware of the fact that a lot of times um people who are um, victimizers will want to tell their side of things, um, try to explain away the badness. So it, that's that's a tough position for therapists to be in. But if you are going in and saying, listen, our kid's telling these stories and I, I'm saying this isn't happening, please help. Because listen, if a kid's telling the truth about abuse, they need a therapist. And if a kid is lying about abuse, they need a therapist. <laughs> Yes, I totally agree. There's no, yeah, there's no scenario where that mentality as a kid, one way or the other, is okay. I mean, 
either way, it's terrifying to actually think about what could be in a kid's mind at that given point in time, and then also the long-term mental damages that that could cause in the future, right? Well, yeah, and they don't really always understand the consequences of the lies that they may be telling. And sometimes it's not lies. Sometimes it's stuff they truly believe. But, you know, sometimes I'll ask questions about things and they'll be like, well, when I was two years old, it's happened. I'm like, well, how could you possibly remember that? And so now I know this is not a real memory. This is something you were told. And then, you know, now I know that something, you know, there's something being built on here from a time that they couldn't possibly remember. Again, this is where I think, you know, you get them into a therapist, perhaps conjoint therapy, if things are really breaking down, you know, a minor's counsel, if that's what's needed. And then, you know, another issue would be a custody evaluator. And in this case, it's usually a PhD who gets appointed by the court to give an assessment to both the parents personality wise, so they give, you know, basically a personality assessment or psychological test of both parents. And then they do interviews, they interview the child. Sometimes they'll watch the interactions with the parents. They'll make collateral contacts, review documents. And at that point, their job is to make a recommendation to the court about the custody visitation situations. You know, hopefully if there's sort of like alienation or coaching going on, they are able to identify that and they can say like, I think there's alienation and coaching going on and that needs to stop. Oftentimes that may not even be enough to change something over because you know that alienated child is so bonded to that parent that there'd be some trauma in separating them totally and having the other parent take them over and we have to be cognizant of the fact that kids really do formulate their own ideas about why things have happened and so you know even if the court says well I'm changing custody you know that could be well mom or dad took me away from my parent and even that can damage the relationship so 100% it's really complicated I mean I feel like we could probably talk for like a full two hours just on that topic Um, I feel like just in general, we could talk for an entire day and never be done with all the different things and crazy different scenarios. I know. I'm already looking at our our recording time and I'm like, all right, this is going to be a long one. And you know what? I'm totally okay with that because we get so many questions around these types of things all the time. And A, it's rare for us to be able to have this conversation with an attorney, but B, it's extra rare, like I said before, to have conversations like this with an attorney who's also a stepmom. So we really appreciate your perspective, Corinne. Um, The next topic that I had, which I feel like should be pretty straightforward just based on our prior conversations, is around child support. So this is such a weird phenomenon for stepmoms, right? Like you you go into a relationship and you're like, all right, your money's your money, my money's my money, we're going to bring maybe bring our money together, maybe not. But one of the things that a lot of us don't think about is when a portion of your spouse's money is already allocated to their significant other for spousal support or their children for any sort of child support. So some of the questions that we got are around how is child support determined, which I feel like there's a lot of content out there around that specifically. I mean, obviously it's income-based, obviously it's It's custody schedule based. How do you figure out child support in California? So in California, we have a program called the DISO Master. Uh, It's an algorithm. So you plug in the the factors that affect child support and, and it will just spit this number out. So the factors generally that we find that affect child support are the timeshare that we have, obviously the number of children to incomes, or earning capacities. Does um, earning capacity take into consideration a stepmom's income? No. So for, for stepmom purposes, the step parents are not financially obligated to pay support for their stepkids. And it's just the two parties incomes. So yeah, my earnings is not somebody else's earning capacity. Your earning capacity is what could you make, you know, based on the market available for what you can do and your skills, you know, what are you capable of doing based on these two factors? In California, each parent actually has a obligation to financially support their children to their ability. So the way we do that when somebody's like, I don't feel like working, we're like, cool, you don't have to, but what we're going to do is impute you an income and then your support's going to be based on that. So then, you know, there's also deductions from income. Usually this comes in the form of like healthcare uh, premiums and stuff like that. So number of kids, timeshare, filing status, incomes or earning capacity, deductions from the incomes. This is all plugged in. And again, it's an algorithm that spits out a number and that's what you pay for support. And it's presumptively correct. For step parents, you're kind of off the hook for this situation. I mean, of course it impacts you, right? Because your household income is now down by a certain amount. And let me just 
say. I get that there's a lot of resentment that goes with that, right? Because now you're like, well, cool. Um, we're now, you know, three thousand dollars less every single month or whatever it is. And, and and I get that. And you're just like, well, cool, I get to pick up the, the slack in some respects. Um, I think this gets especially problematic when you have a you know a parent who isn't working and maybe you feel like they can and whatever. This will cause resentments with people. I get that part of it. And it it does, for lack of a better term, suck sometimes. But Again, child support guidelines are presumptively correct because what they're in essence trying to do is keep a standard of living equality between the household so that the kid isn't going from, you know, a high rise penthouse to, you know, a crack den. We do try to equalize the finances for the kids so that they can kind of enjoy a quality of life, a similar quality of life in both homes. We got a lot of questions around if you lower child support and that is, you know, ordered and it goes through, what are the chances of it going back up again? What does that look like? So because it's based on those factors that we discussed earlier, if there's a change in any one of those factors, it changes support. So if your timeshare suddenly changes, um, you know, you go from having 60-40 to 50-50, that's going to change the support numbers. If somebody loses a job, if somebody gets a raise, those factors that you used to plug in, if those change, then support may change. And the court retains jurisdiction over child support until that child turns 18 or 19 and graduates from high school. So are there other things that as a stepmom, we should be just aware of when it comes to our place, things that we can do, things that we can't do? I know one of the things that we had touched on specifically was social media and potentially being cautious with what you as a stepmom might choose to share. So beyond the legal aspect, obviously you have a good perspective and a very well-rounded perspective. Is there anything that you would caution stepmoms against in that regard? I mean, if this is a hard question because you know a lot of stepmoms want to be like stepmom proud and uh, you know, I love my stepkids and- I have a good um, answer for this. Oh, good, go for it. Don't, don't start do a it. podcast. <laughs> you know, listen, you know, whatever you put out in public can come back to you at some point, right? Like anything you put on social media, whatever. And everyone's got a different perspective on it. You know, you may be very innocently, just like I said, stepmom pride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love my steppies. I don't even know. Steppies a thing. I'm making it a thing. It's like, it's like. Sure, it can be. Why not? Um, it's our new, our new hashtag. Hashtag yeah. steppies. Steppies. Yeah. So. You know, and, and you may, it may be pure and like, you just, you know, you just love these little boogers and, you know, you just want to tell everybody like, I love my little boogers and um, mom might see that and be like, how dare you put my child in public and post this where strangers can see them. And, you know, honestly, I think that's an overreaction. I think that the mom should be so happy that you're so proud of these kids and that you so love them that you're like, look how amazing they are. Like she should be lucky that you're not, I don't know, dipping apples in poison and you know, whatnot and sending huntsmen out for them. But oddly enough, that doesn't seem like it's always the case. You know, they're not always happy that you love their kids. Uh, and it may be because they feel threatened. And, and, you know, it probably isn't so much that they're like, I care about my kids' privacy so much and, you know, whatever. Because I, I guarantee you look at their Facebook page. And, and that's always a fun one when they're like, well, I, you know, my kids' privacy is so important. And you're like, well, look at your Facebook page. So, you know, what are you putting out there and exposing them to? And now, but but it's not okay that I do it. If there's some hypocrisy going on, that can be a problem. But be careful because these things can come back and bite you later on in, in ways you can't even imagine because someone wants to turn something that's completely innocent into something that they want to be a nefarious thing that it really isn't intended to be. So use wisdom when you post things. You know, we all want to believe that we have safe spaces, but I've seen there there have been groups maybe in social media you know people are like you know my husband sucks my kids the, the stepkids suck and the mom sucks and honestly everybody just sucks. and you know what maybe that's all true but it's amazing when somebody's bestie is also in the group and then they're like hey isn't this your ex's new partner saying all these terrible things about your children uh, yes and i think i told you too the first time you and i talked this actually happened recently oh, in uh mm -hmm. it was like a private facebook group stepmom related 
and there was like this big hoopla about someone that they, everybody was trying to figure out who it was. Someone was actually taking screenshots from inside the group and messaging whoever posted the bio mom and their husband and like any of their family members and i think they finally figured out who it was that was doing that but it was a stark reminder to everybody else in that group like just remember that even though you were in what is technically a private facebook group absolutely nothing you say and post is actually private and I think, I mean, since then, I have paid a little bit of attention to that group and people have actually stopped posting things like that because they're realizing, like, duh, the internet is A, permanent and B, not private in any way, shape or form. So you have to assume that the people that you don't want to hear what you have to say online are most likely at some point going to hear. And we, we've we tried really hard too, even just with our episodes and with our content that we post on social media to make it known that we're the voice of the people, right? <laughs> we're we're really trying to be a support system for stepmoms and we're really trying to do good and that is our core intention so we try to look at everything that we post and everything that we say and publish with that lens it's never with a shit talking lens and it's never with a lens where we're trying to put someone down because that's not the intention the intention is to be supportive and to build a community of people that want to be kick-ass stepmoms and i i think that that's something that a lot of podcasts and a lot of stepmoms really are scrutinized heavily around and it's tough because you want to have freedom of expression, right? You want to be able to say what's on your mind. And sometimes you just want to vent, you know, like maybe you don't really mean you hate them all, but man, it just feels so good to be like, hate them all. I don't know if you guys have TikTok, but there's this bio oh. mom and stepmom that like share each other's videos and go at each other. It's just the most dramatic thing you've ever seen in your entire life. And I wish someone that loved them and they trusted would say, just stop. Like, it's so unclassy. It's either unclassy or it's freaking genius and this is all a setup and we are all like sitting there with our popcorn being like oh my god what are they gonna say next so like they are either the worst or the smartest I and I can't really even say which but yeah I mean you have to consider the fact that you know whatever you put out in public can be used you don't want if you don't want it ending up in front of a judge don't put it out there you know that's it and, and same thing with your text messages to each other um if were messages on talking parents or our family wizard you know if you don't want a judge hearing it, probably don't don't say it or type it, especially. That's kind of a good rule of thumb for, for people. But I think that especially, I listen to a lot of uh, step-parent podcasts. And, you know, this one is a nice, like for me, a nice balance of um, not too woo-woo um, and, and very realistic and down-to-earth and very real without being offensive or bashing or there are really real struggles for stepmoms and I do think that having a place to talk about the real aspects of being a step-parent and the things that are good and the things that are not good because that is life there are things that are good or not good is important you know our voices should not be just dismissed or go unheard or treated as they're not relevant because we we are involved in these children's lives, but you know, we're, we're going with it and we're, we're keeping people going here. And so I think that it is important that you guys are doing this and that you have a space where it's safe to talk about things where you are getting information where you're not feeling like you're alone and isolated. I mean, like a hundred percent of the reason why I found this podcast is because of the alone, isolated feeling I had feeling frustrated, feeling like I can't be the only one who feels like this sometimes like, and feeling somewhat like a bad person for having some of the feelings that I, I had. And I'm like, maybe I'm just headed this. And it turns out that's not really what it is that my feelings were pretty natural. Um, um, but these are the real stuff that we deal with day to day, every day. And it's great that you guys have a forum for this. And I appreciate being able to come on here and talk about the legal aspect of things too, because I think there's so much mystery in how does the court system work and people are really afraid of it because they don't know how it works. They don't understand it. And so they're hesitant to want to engage with a system. And, and gosh, it's so expensive. You know, do I need a lawyer? Is this really going to be worth five or $10,000 at the end of the day? Am I going to actually get what I want? Or am I just going to get a huge bill? That's tough. These are, it's not an easy decision to make. Yeah. Corinne, I will say you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly why we started this podcast. So I remember my first 
several years as a stepmom, even as a girlfriend before I became married to my husband, which at that point I was doing all of the mom things, right? Googling, like trying to find articles about being a stepmom. And it was few and far between. And if there was stuff, it was so vague. And there was like no one that I could really ask questions to. I was just left for the, the with this like two-page article, right? And then I'd have to try to formulate my own idea. And the overwhelming, and Bailey would, I assume, agree with me, the overwhelming amount of messages that we get from moms, stepmoms, even stepdads, who are in the beginning stages, or maybe they've been a step-parent for 10 years and they're dealing with a unique situation that's newly thrown at them. And to be able to like answer questions and guide them and give our advice and whatever that means for them has been so fulfilling. And so we're so happy you found us and we love that we had you on the podcast. I think we definitely need to do episode two. This could have gone on way longer. So thank you for taking the time to hang out with us. I know we still have a lot of questions we didn't get to, but... Yeah, I was just looking at the list right now, and I'm like, oh, we just, like, I feel like we barely scratched the surface for some of these. And there's a lot to it, because, you know, there are obviously a lot of aspects of the law that touch our lives in a very real way. And it's just, it's like, we're confused. We don't know why. And it's tough. So I'm happy to do a second podcast episode if you want to do that. Yeah, most um, definitely. I think we actually went to some areas I wasn't even expecting, which is super fun. So that was cool. I love that. I, that's part of the reason why I had said earlier, I'm like, You're, we're pretty unscripted. I mean, I try to, when we have guests, especially, I try to do a little bit of a cleaner agenda, but oftentimes we go rogue. And I think that's what people like about our podcast is we're not scripted. We're not trying to stick to a really strict agenda. We just kind of go where where we feel there is merit to unpack something specific. So for anybody that's listening, you are welcome to reach out to us with specific questions for Corinne. But I, again, disclaimer, she can't answer questions related to your specific legal situation. However, if you are in California and you happen to be in the San Diego area in the market for a family law attorney, hopefully through this episode, you've determined that she would be a great option and someone who truly has empathy for the stepmom community. So she's a great resource for you in that regard. And if I can't take it, I can always refer you to someone because obviously conflicts of interest exist. So I'm, I'm happy always to, to point you in the right direction. Yes, agreed. Thank you so, so much, Corinne. And again, please follow us on Instagram. Our Instagram handle is at stepmonsterpodcast. You can email us anytime you want, stepmonsterpodcast at gmail.com. You can book a private coaching session with either myself or Elise. You know how to get a hold of us. Our DMs are always open. Thank you, Corinne, again, so much for being here. We really appreciate your time. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye.